Welcome to ShopCast, talking retail strategy with your host, Michael Dart. In this program, we'll spotlight the changes you need to know about in the world of retail shopping and help you plan for the future of the industry. Now, here is Michael Dart. Hello and welcome to ShopCast, the radio show that spends all its time focused on understanding the crazy world of retail. And boy, is it, uh, is it a crazy dynamic world. I'm Michael Dart, and I'm your host, and uh, I'm a partner at AT Carney, and also the co-author of two books on retail, New Rules of Retail, and Retail Seismic Shift. So, welcome to the show, and I think you're going to enjoy today's show. Uh, it's particularly focused on those of you out there who love an up-to-the-minute, data-driven, insightful, informative view on what's happening across the board of retail uh, very broadly. I'm joined by two colleagues from the NPD group. And uh, for those of you who don't know, the NPD group offers data, industry expertise, prescriptive analytics to a number of leading companies across multiple industries. And they are able to do this because they have an incredible array of data. They have point of sale data that comes from more than 220,000 stores, plus e-commerce and mobile platforms. They collect millions of receipts from consumers, both in bricks and mortar and e-commerce, and they conduct over 12 million, 12 million consumer surveys each year. So it's a, uh, an incredible array of data that they are uh, bringing to the table. And in the course of today's conversation, we're gonna learn a lot about what they're seeing and what they think is happening in retail. But before we get there, let me just lay a little bit of context of what I see as happening in retail and some of the the ways in which our crazy retail landscape is shaping up. I'm sure most of you are aware that there's been an incredible sell-off broadly in the market, but very specifically in the retail sector. If you look at it, through December, early December, the S&P leading 95 retailers had actually fallen over 17%, which is the largest drop in their share value since the great crisis in 2008. And it's really interesting that this crisis in confidence in many ways from the investor community has taken place at a time when there's tremendous optimism actually around retail sales. The National Retail Federation released a report that said they believe that year-on-year sales were going to increase for the consumer between 4 maybe even as high as 5%. Um, So it's quite remarkable that you're seeing a lot of pessimism from the investor community at a time when retail sales are pretty robust and the economy broadly is pretty robust. And it's across the board, by the way. If you look at luxury, middle market, budget retailers, everybody's been hit. Uh, Tiffany's down nearly 40%. Target is off nearly 25%. Even Best Buy, who's actually weathered the storm pretty well in the electronic segment against Amazon, has fallen by 30%. So we're seeing an incredible dislocation. And there are a number of reasons for why there's pessimism. Number one, the investor community has a lot of concerns about the structural integrity of the retail sector. In other words, the online threat still seems to be something that's causing a lot of anxiety for retailers and obviously a lot more for the investor community. Number two, the data potentially points to a lack of confidence around long-term consumer spending. Uh, We've had an incredible boom, uh, but at the same time, household debts at all-time highs. 
And if interest rates continue to rise and we have any sort of macro shock, maybe the consumer spending could fall back and maybe the, the Wall Street is uh, responding to that. And the third backdrop we have, of course, is uh, incredible political uncertainty. Uh, potentially, we're going to have tariffs and we're going to see um, a lot of global trade wars. And that obviously could have a pretty significant impact on the consumer and what they're going to be spending and where they're going to be spending it. So to unpack all of that, uh, let me introduce my two guests uh, who are going to help me understand what's going on. Uh, first of all, I'd like to introduce Don Unza. Uh, Don is one of the great thought leaders at NPD, uh, spends a lot of time in consumer and retail as well as financial services and the, and the public sector. He oversees NPD's panel of more than 1,300 retailers, uh, which represents all of their platforms, including e-commerce and bricks and mortar. And he's an expert in a large number of different sectors in the retail uh, world. And he's trusted in the C-suites of many companies where he's offering a lot of advice from Target to LG, Adidas, Wolverine, and, and many others. Uh, so, Don, welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael. Glad to be here. Don is joined by Marshall Cohen. And Marshall Cohen is Chief Industry Advisor to the retail group at NPD. He's been there for more than 30 years, and I could spend a large part of our, our show here actually reading Marshall's uh, extraordinary bio. He's had uh, a tremendous number of accomplishments. He's, he's written two books as well, Why Customers Do What They Do, uh, Buy Me and How to Get Customers to Choose Your Products and Ignore the Rest. He's on a number of boards, including the American Apparel and Footwear Association. Uh, he's the head of the fashion and apparel manufacturers at NPD, as well as many major retailers. Um, he's been a guest lecturer at places as, uh, from Wharton School of Business to the Fashion Institute of Technology. So uh, somebody who keeps his finger on the pulse um, every day in terms of what's happening on retail. So Marshall, thank you for joining me as well. My pleasure to be here. So um, maybe to kick off, and, and Don, maybe I'd uh, uh, lob this your way. Uh, for folks who don't know the NPD group that well and, and how you collect your information to begin to understand what's happening in the retail and consumer world, could you give a little bit of more detail maybe than I did, but uh, uh, some of the sources that you'll be referencing today in, uh, in reaching some of the insights and conclusions that uh, you have? Sure. You actually did a nice job of it, Michael. <clears throat> and first and foremost, thanks for having us. Uh, we're, we're real happy to be here and, and in this conversation with you. So NPD really wants to be the trusted source of information for the vertical uh, retail industries that we play in. And we want to do this in a number of different ways. First and foremost is the foundation of our data and the data we bring to our clients. Uh, but overlaid on top of the data is our thought leadership. And that might go very deep into the vertical itself. Could be footwear, could be toys, could be auto parts. But it also provides an overview of what's happening in overall macro retail and uh, both the art of retail, uh, the science of retail, and what's happening with the consumer. So we really have three primary data sets. One is the point-of-sale data that we get from retailers. We aggregate that up and anonymize the retailer and uh, put that into different industries all the way down to the item level, uh, including, Michael, we have attributes in some cases, 60, 70 attributes per item uh, that the, uh, the client, our clients are able to go very deep in determining what's selling and what's not. The second uh, data set is our consumer data set, which is the surveys that you mentioned, the 12 million survey, surveys. And uh, that gives us more of the who and the why. 
Then the third piece is a new one that we have, which is our checkout service, which is a bit of a blend of both. We actually are harvesting data off of consumers that are opting in for us to see their receipts of what they're buying, both online and in the store. So those are our three primary data sets. And then once again, laid on top of that is our expertise uh, that we bring to the table, uh, both in the vertical and overall retail. So that's the information they, that we use, and that's uh, really our primary mission for our clients. That's great. So you pretty much have a unique view on uh, what's going on with the consumer uh, and where they're spending their money and um, potentially even why. So curious, just to kick us off then, how would you characterize the current macro consumer environment and uh, what are you seeing out there right now? Well, I know there's a lot of talk in the press and in media right now of, uh, of an economic slowdown. The things that we look at in terms of the consumer, uh, we're seeing a fairly healthy consumer. Um, if you look at uh, any of the economic indicators of how many people we have uh, working, whether they're making more money than they have before, um, there are definitely some headwinds that the consumer has with health care expenses, uh, and things like that. Um, and we're seeing growth uh, holiday to date, uh, which, is, which is good. Um, we're also seeing growth overall in the retail industry in the categories that we track. It's important to note, Michael, most of the industries we track are discretionary uh, spends. Uh, so these are more of things that people uh, uh, want to buy versus the things that they need to buy, food and shelter and things like that. So that's an important thing to, uh, to note. The piece that I'm a little bit concerned about is the psychology of the consumer in, in that they're just being barraged by uh, political uh, uncertainty and economic uncertainty, especially uh, uh, over the last uh, uh, two to three months on the economic side. So we're watching that pretty carefully. Mm-hmm. But I would say but- we have overall a pretty, uh, pretty healthy consumer. So... Uh, against the backdrop, and it seems like a lot of people seem to think that that is the the consumer's profile right now, which is reasonably robust. They're spending quite well, and there's a lot of growth. But as I said in my introduction, we're just seeing a lot of pessimism from the investor community in terms of how they're treating the uh, the valuations of a lot of these companies. Um, so it may be the consumer and some anxiety around that. But is it more broadly based then you think that they are looking at the structural changes taking place in retail today and that they think that online is going to dominate and that's what's driving them to be so pessimistic about a lot of these uh, bricks and mortar retailers? Um, And is that accurate? So I'm I'm curious if you think that e-commerce really is, you know, the big driver in the decline in valuations and if Wall Street's got it right that uh, e-commerce is going to take over. Well, Wall Street does not like uncertainty. And that's what we have going on here. We have a structural, um, and you referred to it in your book, the seismic shift that's happening right now in the foundation of retail here in North America. <clears throat> and with that comes a lot of uncertainty of what's actually going to happen. And, Michael, you've seen uh, colleagues of ours say that the majority of sales are going to move online for some of these categories. And, in fact, that is not happening. Uh, we still have somewhere between... Um, 70 to 80 percent, and if you look at the food categories, 90 to 95 percent of the sales that are actually still happening in stores. Mm -hmm. So I think when everything settles down, 
we are going to see e-commerce be a strong part of retail going forward, but I don't think it's going to be anywhere close to what some of the doomsday people are saying about uh, uh, about what's going to happen in, in U.S. retail. It's going to be a blend of stores and e-commerce. That's going to be the winner. It's fascinating to watch the e-commerce players try to invest in stores and the store-based retailers try to have a robust e-commerce. They're both going uh, in the same direction, uh, or the opposite direction, I should say. Um, and that's a fascinating thing to watch. But I think that's what's driving the valuation is that people just don't know where this thing's going to end up. And, and based upon your data, and you mentioned, you know, for most of retail, it's probably between 70, 80% now in uh, physical bricks and mortar and the rest online. And obviously uh, for grocery, uh, it's still predominantly all purchased in stores. Do you have a prediction or a sense of where it settles out and, and how rapidly we're going to get to that point where people can take a, a sigh of relief and say, now I understand where we are? Yeah, we've done a fair amount of work to say where is each category going to uh, hit a maturation point. And this is not something that's being talked about enough in retail. And we believe at NPD that every industry is going to hit a maturation point of how much will be sold online versus how much is going to be done in stores. Um, we've started to, to hit, I think, the, the, the final innings of the baseball game, so to speak, in the maturation in some industries, such as some categories in tech, uh, potentially some categories such as small appliances. Um, but we still have a lot of headroom in a lot of other categories. And, in fact, a lot of the predictions that, uh, that we put together – uh, Marshall's been the author of. Marshall, you want to weigh in on this one as well? Well, the, the real understanding is how high is high, and the answer is it's the great unknown with the ability to be able to put the science, which is the numbers, to to the equation. And as Don started to go down that road, there are some industries that are clearly showing some signs of seeing that huge online growth of market share theft start to slow down. Uh, but there's one key factor that is really a huge contributor to all of the components that we've discussed already, and that's product innovation. The inability to be able to drive growth from new product entering into the marketplace, whether it be online or whether it be in store, is what's going to determine how much more retail harvesting is going to be able to occur. So when you ask, are we going to see the continuation of the online garage? The answer is in some categories that are less mature, things like beauty and apparel that were very late to the game in getting online. And in fact, you know, even the toy industry was late to get in. But once uh, Toys R Us had some challenges at retail, boy, did it open up the opportunity for online to just come in and like a vacuum, suck it all out. So that shows the vulnerability of an industry. And when you have a shakeup in the landscape, it gives online this opportunity to just leapfrog forward. So you could very well see some other businesses that are certainly being threatened over the years to remain in business, create this vacuum that some retail opportunities, particularly in the online sector, are going to be able to take. Uh, and the other great unknown is as we look to the future, there are businesses that are percolating that even haven't even developed yet that could really create a challenge or, ch or put some turmoil into the, into the landscape as we know it, meaning it could be, look at how Warby Parker was able to remold a whole model of the eyeglass business. 
so some there are players out there that people don't even know about competition that's starting to to create. So in a short term futuristic view, you're going to see the challenge come from both the online side as well as the store sector. Consumers don't want to give up the touch and feel aspect in certain categories. Don and I work very closely with certain retailers looking at some of the components that make success work Mm -hmm. or create the challenges. And in many cases, it's that touch and feel of the product in small appliances where that's why, as he's saying, that's a category that's matured out to some degree because now the consumer needs to be able to get their hands on the product, not just read a review and make that purchase. Right, right. Well, we're going to take a short break now, but Don Marshall, I really want to unpack a lot of what you just went through there in terms of, you know, which sectors are hitting maturation point, what you think some of the reasons might be for that, and then what are the implications for some of the other categories that uh, haven't yet developed uh, to that extent. Uh, But I'm Michael Dart. I'm here with Don Unza and Marshall Cohen from the NPD Group, and uh, we'll be right back to, uh, to continue our conversation about the future of retail. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Only 12% of companies from the original Fortune 500 list remain on the list today. How do you ensure your organization stands the test of time? A.T. Carney works with Fortune 500 companies every day to answer this question. Visit atcarney.com to find out more. The American consumer market will soon include six generations for the first time. Prepare for the era of personalization and total connectivity with insights from consumers at 250. Join the conversation at atcarney.com forward slash consumers dash 250. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is on Instagram. Make sure you follow us and comment on our pictures from behind the scenes at our radio shows, live events, and around the network. We want to see what you have to share as well. Check us out on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're tuned in to ShopCast, talking retail strategy, featuring Michael Dart as your host. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to ShopCast and the conversation with Don Unza and Marshall Cohen from the NPD Group. Uh, Marshall, as we were chatting towards the end of the last segment there, you mentioned that a lot of different retail sectors are seeing different rates of maturation. And I was curious if you could... Uh, give me a sense of which sectors are, are maturing and the rate of growth declining or staying stable, I guess, in terms of uh, um, their e-commerce penetration. And what do you think some of the reasons are for that? And uh, and then let's just explore how that may play out for some other sectors. Let's go in order of birth of the online world in the e-commerce level of consumer acceptance. We started off with technology, one of the first industries to really embrace the online environment. In fact, some of the businesses were spawned off of it. So if you go back, and I'm going to date myself, but you look at things like Gateway Computers, Dell Computers, you know, all these businesses that were selling direct to consumer through the online environment, it started off with the consumer accepting and embracing these things. Uh, And over the course of that 
20-year period, uh, it allowed the technology industry to really take the lead in selling online. Consumers that accepted it, and retail stores had to find a way to incorporate that uh, as, because it certainly was a market share theft, uh, if you would say, uh, of ability to be able to sell products. So you saw the bigger because products were being embraced by more and more consumers, and the industry grew. As we watch that now, being the most mature of all of the industries that we track in the discretionary categories, you begin to sit there and see how its growth is still there, but that growth is slowing. And the stores are now able to capture some of their growth in some of the categories within that industry. At the same time, the retailers have now finally embraced the need and the desire to sell online in concert with in-store. So they're creating an even greater in-store experience. So if you just look at what Best Buy did in their ability to be able to take Magnolia to the next level uh, and really create that higher-end in-home theater, uh, that's really hard to replicate in the online world. That's why they spent so much time in developing that uh, and having the service part of the equation with, Geek Squad being a big part of it. So you watch that business grow. Take that and compare that to the other end of the spectrum, which is beauty. The beauty industry, and particularly prestige and mid-level beauty, was very, very, very late in the game of getting into the online direct-to-consumer world. Um, And brands were so busy keeping their relationship with the stores that what was happening was the industry started to shift underneath it, and it allowed some of the mid-level retailers to increase their brand presence to challenge the prestige beauty business, and it started to really change the landscape up. Now, being the least mature part of the online discretionary business, beauty still has the ability to be able to continue to grow and mature at a much higher level than they are currently. It doesn't mean that they'll ever reach the level of 50 to 60% like a technology industry could, Uh, but you're really in the position of watching these businesses because they're not all at the same maturation point, um, both from an age as well as a consumer acceptance and as well as a retail engagement, meaning retailers are not necessarily embracing it as rapidly as some of the other industries were. The second industry to really gain traction was footwear. So think about somebody like a Zappos that built their model on the e-commerce model, and they were able to prove to the world, just like mm-hmm. Tesla did, they're going to go out and build this you know, premium product that consumers are going to love. So Zappos went out and built this model that consumers and, and, and analysts would sit there and say, this will never work. You can't have consumers with free shipping, returning product, and uh, you know this business will last a year, if at, if at all. And you know, 16 years later, here they are, still generating some of the, the biggest impact in the footwear industry with more room to grow. So what you have is a landscape that's being uh, consistently ebbing and flowing from the store's participation and brand's selling direct to consumer. One of the biggest challenges Don and I talk about is the need for brands to get into the direct to consumer game and in many mm-hmm. cases have to learn how to feel comfortable about using the online environment to do that. Don, you want to add to that? Yeah, the big push for direct to consumer is is 
really catching traditional brands and and uh, traditional retailers a little off guard. Um, well, one thing I want to riff off a little bit what you said, Marshall, in the beauty world, the hesitance of the major brands wanting to get into online also opened up an opportunity for these small niche brands that were fueled by influencers to come in out of nowhere and use e-commerce as an absolute way to get enormous, enormous amount of traction. Mm-hmm. Uh, some that's never been seen before, like this Kylie Jenner and, and, and other small brands like that. Um, I think that's another point, too. Um, and there are multiple industries. There are lots of different factors, uh, Michael, that play into whether a product, a brand, or a category is more uh, susceptible to go on, be an online purchase than an in-store purchase. Right. Some of them, Marshall talked about like a tacti- tactile feel. Yeah. Um, you know, when, when Marshall's picking out the, uh, uh, the, the, the mixer, uh, the KitchenAid mixer for his kitchen, he wants to actually see that shade of al- avocado green. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, just kidding. Just, just kidding, Marshall. Um, <laughs> but, the, but there are a lot of pieces, weight and uh, ability to ship a product. Uh, is another one. Um, one thing we also saw in our data that your your uh, listeners might find interesting is that uh, impulse categories um, uh, don't do as well online as they do in stores. Mm-hmm. And that was a little that was a little uh, contrary to what we thought would happen because when you buy something on Amazon and that ribbon on the bottom that has the five products that are algorithmically generated that says when this is bought, these five things are almost always bought with it. Yep. That is still not better than walking through the aisle and buying a pair of shoes and seeing the whole rack of socks. Right. The, and we looked at this industry by industry, Michael. I mean, the, the socks piece was something Marshall discovered uh, early on. Um, but when we looked industry by industry, any impulse or add-on category did not do as well online uh, as a connect rate to the to the main product as it did in store. I, I, we found that interesting. So if I if I were to push you, and I probably this is uh, you know an impossible question potentially to answer, but I'd just be curious what you think if if we have a recap of this show three years from now maybe five years from now, what do you think online penetration in total is going to look like? And, you know, is it going to be continuing to accelerate or do you think we'd have reached equilibrium at that point? Well, let me take a stab at that and I'll I'll pass it. Yeah, let me take a stab at that and I'll pass it over to Marshall. So uh, I think it's going to be different by industry. That's the first way we've got to answer that question. Mm -hmm. Um, When people think of online, they think that apparel is selling the same rate as toys uh, as the same rate as office supplies. And it's just not true. Uh, there are a lot of factors. You know, the one on toys that has just bumped things up, Marshall talked about a little earlier, when Toys R Us went out of business, you now know ha- have no place in the United States where you can see toys that are not part of the top 400 toys. Yeah. You can still see the top 400 to- toys at Target and at, at, at Walmart, but there's no other store, na- nationwide store in the country that you can see that. That all of a sudden boosts uh, all of those products are going to do better online. Um, so I think it's going to still be larger than what it is today. There's still headroom in most categories to grow. 
Um, we are estimating anywhere between 25% uh, up to 50% in some categories will be online uh, when this is all said and done. Um, the fascinating one, Michael, that, I, that, that we've been watching, and we don't track this one directly, is the shelf-stable CPG categories. Yeah. Uh, I really thought those would have been more at the 10, 15, 20% range by now, and they're still hovering around the 4 to 6% range. Um, so that, that one, I, I, I don't know how to call that one, and that's a big part of, uh, uh, of products bought by consumers. Marshall, do you want to add on to that? Yeah, go ahead, Mark. Yeah, well, as we look, yeah, as we look to the three to five year growth online discussion, uh, we certainly recognize that it's going to play a different role. Online is going to be right now. Online, in many cases, is a convenience. Um, it's a place to go. It's a reference point. You know, people do what I call pre-search online, and then sometimes go to stores. Uh, but what we are seeing the big shift in, probably the biggest dramatic change in holiday twenty eighteen was consumers' use of the online and mobile capabilities of retail stores versus prior years of using some of the businesses and the platforms like an Amazon. So Hmm. let me give you the example. You would go into a retail outlet this year, and you would see consumers looking at a, and this is a real live example, walking into a retailer, seeing a 65-inch television for $400. Dollars, three hundred ninety-nine dollars for a sixty-five-inch LED TV. All right. So here they are. They're looking at you know guys are drooling because they're sitting and going, oh, I always wanted one of these. Look at this price point is unbelievable. I can't even buy a laptop for this much money. And yeah. you know here I am able to sit there and now get this sixty-five-inch coveted screen television. But I don't. Do I really want to lug it out? No. So what they do is they take their phone out and buy it online from that very same retailer and have it delivered within two days and pay an extra $65 and have it set up for them. Mm-hmm. That changed the whole dynamic right there. So when you look at that as an example of will online continue to grow, the answer is clearly yes. But it's going to grow from a different perspective. That's now growing from the store being the catalyst of the sale rather than online being the sale. The majority of these people who bought that particular product didn't even know that product existed in the store at that price. So what we now have is a switch in the usage of the online equation. So that's where the growth is going to occur. The growth will be slower. It's not going to be you know, high, mid-level, double-digit growth, that 20% growth that we've seen year over year for the last few years. It's going to be in the you know, the, the, in the higher single-digit growth rates. It's going to be a big contributor in many cases to the traditional retail store business. That's where you're going to see the biggest growth factor. We're already starting to see that erode some of the growth rate of the pure play retailers. What's interesting about what you said there, Marshall, and, uh, and it, it relates to some data that I've seen, is that the folks are actually going to uh, the retailer, the store retailer that they're in's website or app or other other way to purchase that. Because a lot of the data that I've seen suggested that they actually go to Amazon not only to start their search, but also if they decide they don't want to lug it out of the store, then they'll have a look on Amazon first to see if they can get it from that. Is that is that not the pattern that's actually taking place? You're, you're saying there's something different going on, right? I'm saying we're beginning to see 
a threat to that exact model because that has yeah. been over the past past four or five years the absolute position consumers have taken. You know, the retailers were worried about showrooming and how yeah. consumers would come in, look at the product, and then go buy it on Amazon. This year, we started to clearly see the retailers getting the advantage of the sale to themselves because they've enhanced their mobile capabilities in selling the product. They've made their online contribution to their overall retail that much more important. So when you look at the retailers who are going to be successful as we come out of 2018 into 2019, in almost every case, the retail winners are going to be the ones who manage to enhance their online capabilities to marry up with their in-store experience. Those are the ones who are going to be the winners. Interesting. So having a really effective mobile app that uh, you can get consumers to download in the store and that can be very easy to use to purchase something is a key to success for all of these guys, it appears. Uh, the yeah, it, an important it, component or just the enhanced website, just the ability to be able to do that. In the past, they yeah. didn't have that. Yeah. Don, can, one, one thing I want to... Uh, mention here or ask you is uh, uh, since we've mentioned sure. Amazon and we've mentioned these trends Amazon has something like 50% of all online sales uh, so it's just an incredible uh, elephant here in terms of what they're doing do you think that that is going to continue are they are they the the winner here or are some of the trends that Marshall are talking about going to mean that they're actually going to start facing some headwinds from a lot of retailers who are just getting much more effective at, uh, at meeting consumer needs here yeah, I think we've danced around this just a little bit, but let's be really clear about what's happening here. I think we are absolutely at an inflection point where the retailer, the store-based retailers, Michael, are starting to post material numbers with their dot-com sites, using their stores as an asset to make it happen. And I think the winning formula, and, and Marshall and I talk a lot about this, the winning formula at the end of the day for most industries, not all industries, but for most industries, is going to be a robust store presence uh, blended in with an online uh, capability um, uh, that is seamless to the consumer. It shouldn't feel like two separate companies. It shouldn't feel like two separate transactions. They should absolutely be blended. And we're seeing... Stores that are winning, let me give you just some examples. The app is one thing, but you're seeing store representatives that have tablets uh, Mm -hmm. that are enabled as they walk the customer through the store and say, I'm sorry we don't have that size. Let me press this button, and let me see your, you you know, we've got your loyalty number right here. Uh, We can have that delivered to you in less than 48 hours um, uh, from another store. Uh, and they still get the purchase there on-site in-store. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that's going to be the winning formula uh, going forward. And there's also a growing amount of uh, negativity around the platforms, um, whether it be uh, fraud products through, yeah. through the, the third-party pieces. And the drum seems to be beating a lot louder on that. Um, there's arbitrage happening that, um, that it, that, uh, isn't necessarily showcasing the best price for the consumer. Um, so a lot of people have always thought you go online to Amazon and that's going to be the best price you can get. Well, not necessarily. If somebody's posting something through a third party, uh, through marketplace and fulfilling it, 
through like a Costco or a Sam's. We're seeing more and more of that. Um, yeah. and you could have gone directly to Costco or Sam's and have bought that. So right. I think the, the platforms, Michael, are, are, we're, we're starting to see an inflection point, at least in some of our categories, uh, of how large they might be. Don, we're going to take a, another break right now. But before we go to break, um, if somebody wanted to go to and visit a retailer that you think is doing the integration of the stores with the technology and the apps that you just outlined the best, which store would you recommend they visit? I think Best, I think best Buy does a fantastic job uh, of, of, uh, uh, of the knowledge on their site and the yeah. knowledge in their store being, uh, being very uh, synchronized. Uh, I also think their pricing, their promotions, uh, their ability to match prices of their their competitor on on the site. Uh, you don't have to go see a manager; an associate can do it. Um, I yeah. think they have one of the most winning formulas that I've seen. And the other one, of course, would be some of the uh, department stores um, that have enabled their their people on the floor with these tablets to yeah. be able to pull from inventory from anywhere. Those are two examples. And I think Macy's is doing that. Uh, um, uh, I think uh, Belk is doing that as well. Yeah. And Nordstrom obviously has been doing a great job of integrating a lot of technology for, for a number of years now. Let's take a quick yeah. break here. I'm with uh, Don Unzer and Marshall Cohen from the NPD Group. And when we will turn, uh, I want to pick up one of the themes you guys mentioned, which is, the rise of all of these small startups. And Marshall, you mentioned Warby Parker. Curious why that's happening and, uh, and if you think it's going to continue. So you're listening to Shopcast, and we'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Only 12% of companies from the original Fortune 500 list remain on the list today. How do you ensure your organization stands the test of time? A.T. Carney works with Fortune 500 companies every day to answer this question. Visit atcarney.com to find out more. The American consumer market will soon include six generations for the first time. Prepare for the era of personalization and total connectivity with insights from consumers at 250. Join the conversation at atcarney.com forward slash consumers dash 250. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're tuned in to ShopCast, talking retail strategy, featuring Michael Dart as your host. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to ShopCast. Michael Dart uh, from AT Carney here with my two guests, Don Anza and Marshall Cohen from the NPD Group. As I mentioned just before the break, one theme that uh, 
uh, came up in an earlier part of our conversation, which I wanted to uh, continue dissecting and exploring a little bit here, is the rise of the small startup sites. Uh, Marshall, you mentioned Warby Parker and the disruptive effect that they've had on eyewear. Uh, but you see a number of these folks coming from Casper in, uh, in mattresses, Mac Weldon in apparel, Allbirds in footwear. Uh, it just seems that there's just a, uh, a number of these folks emerging. Obviously, beauty, you mentioned as well, just having an incredible number of small startups using influencers and social media to get traction. Uh, curious if you could let me know what uh, uh, what you think is driving this and if you think it's going to continue or is it just a, a blip because so much capital has been available for these companies to, uh, to get going. But uh, is this a sustainable phenomena? One of the beauties of the online environment is it clearly levels the playing field. Somebody who is an entrepreneur working out of their garage can have the same marketability of their products as a Nike. And it sounds kind of crazy, but when you think about the ability to be able to utilize the Internet and social media and the exponential factor of brand growth from a reputation perspective, it allows these small, tiny niche businesses to emerge and gain some power and traction. Now, could you imagine in today's environment going to a retailer and saying, I have this new product, I want you to invest in it and buy from me, and let's go make this, you know, they, they kind of, there's so many needs and differences that occur in the environment today that it doesn't allow you to just walk in and go sell your product to a retailer. So, the online environment provides a forum for them to be able to play at that same level. The, des- the reason for the desire of this product is consumers want and need for unique product, innovative product. In fact, what we're seeing in many cases is the innovation in the market is being driven by a lot of these businesses that are either coming from outside the industry or from these small startup companies that are looking at this whole process and saying, here's the great differentiator, and consumers are embracing it. So you have a business like Bonobos, the pant company, that went and said, we're going to build pants from a different way. We're going to market pants from a different way. And what that did was it changed the dynamic, and then we all know what happened to them. They became an important component in the market, and then you had you know a behemoth retailer like Walmart coming in and buying them. So it's all, we're seeing this happen constantly. So in beauty, where all of these boutique brands are being bought up by these large conglomerate brands, because this is what they're doing in being able to find ways to get innovation and growth in their marketplace. Uh, so you're seeing it from so many different levels and so many different industries, the way to inject newness and excitement and the mm-hmm. consumer's desire to discover these brands are what's driving a lot of this. And do you think there's a particular segment that is particularly ripe for this that, you know, for example, if an investor was looking at putting capital to work and they said, you know, I want to invest in relatively early stage consumer companies that are going to be very disruptive. uh, Do you see a particular sector that you would direct them to based upon, Mm. you know, the data and the insights that uh, that you've seen so far? I would sit there and say you have to look at short term. You got to look at beauty mm-hmm. um, in, in looking at historical data in how they've had these small brands infiltrate the marketplace. 
going a little bit further, obviously technology is constantly filled with this. So um, you have that ability because there are products that we don't even know that are being invented that are about to emerge. Uh, yeah. But then you also have businesses that are more surprising, businesses like fashion. And what you're seeing, and the reason why I say that is you're seeing success from the retailers in private branding. Probably the biggest disruption to retail in 2018 was private brand success and desire by the retailers to go out and create their own brand power again. Okay, the pendulum has swung back into retailers investing very heavily in private brands, both in-store and online. And the reason for that is differentiation. They want to become different than the competition and have exclusivity and control over products and pricing. And so even in fashion, you now have the ability to take a small brand that's going to make a big impact and businesses that are going to invest in that to try to keep the exclusivity within their marketplace. Separating, that's what made department stores what they were in their old days, getting their mm -hmm. personality back. You would find yeah. your favorite store because it had brands that married up to your taste level, your needs, your desires, and you wouldn't find those things anywhere else. That's where retail is going, and it needs to go to be able to sustain growth. So, Don, picking hey, up Michael, on the, yeah, yes, go can, ahead. Can I weigh in on this one just for a second? So yeah, please do. the categories, all the categories that you mentioned, whether it be mattresses, eyewear, some areas of fashion, they all have one thing in common. They're all high margin categories. So I think that's one interesting point in terms of the ones that are being disrupted by the small startups. The other thing is what's being disrupted, if you think about 20 years ago and how a brand became nothing to actually be seen by the consumer nationwide. The process they had to go through before and the process they have to go through now are two very different things. Marshall alluded to this. Um, you know, it used to be that they would, they would go and present themselves to as many buyers as they could in retail, and this is still happening to some degree. But you think about where the buyers are getting their good ideas now is that they're looking to see what the influencers are saying. They're looking right. to see if there's anything that's in, in Kickstarter that has uh, – uh, that's starting to blow up. Uh, they're looking for new innovative products in very different places than they did before. And I find that fascinating. Hmm. That is interesting, isn't it? You know, certainly the growth of these startups has been pretty amazing, although somebody like Warby Parker, I'm surprised given, as you mentioned, the margin structure and uh, their pricing, that they haven't actually grown a lot faster. And I'm a little bit surprised that they had to open stores quite so early on in the evolution of their business because it strikes me there's so much white space out there that they could have grown and developed a lot faster. But a lot of these startups are immediately switching to bricks and mortar as well. And curious, Don, if you have any thoughts on why that is and 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 why they, if to some degree, seem to stall in their growth when they get to maybe $100, $200 million in, uh, in sales. Well, I think the consumer demands it to some degree, Michael. I, I think mm -hmm. at some point... Yeah especially with the experience with Warby Parker. I think it's great. They send you the five frames. You try them on. Uh, you send the four back that you don't want. That's great. But if I also had the option to go into the store and actually have them fitted like I did at the optometrist and I still got a significant discount, that, that seems to be the next level that they need to go to um, uh, to hit the next plateau of sales. Right. Um, and so you see all these models uh, eventually want stores. 
And I think that says volumes of, of what's going to happen here with the U.S. consumer, uh, with the future of stores and e-commerce. It's going to be a yeah. blended deal. Uh, that's the winning strategy. And so, Marshall, as you look across the different uh, store formats, specialty retail, you know, mass stores, department stores, what do you think is going to happen in each of those segments? Who's going to be the winners and losers? Off-price stores as well, obviously, been on fire for some time period. Any perspectives or anything you're seeing in the data about how those channels are going to evolve over time? As as Don mentions, that there's going to be a critical need for stores, but it could have a different impact on different types of stores, all of these forces. It's a three-part short answer. Uh, and the three parts are age segmentations. The boomer who is going to continue to be one of the most robust spenders out there are going to have very specific needs that are going to need to be catered to. Uh, and retail store environment is going to have to adjust to the needs of those boomers. Uh, for those retailers who continually uh, I don't want to say ignore, but allow the boomer to age out of their environment are going to feel a little bit of the pain. When you look at the the millennials that are driving a big growth potential, which was the, the whole focus of the last five years, they've already aged into the next life stage. So their focus has gone from self-purchases to now family-oriented purchases. So their whole business is going to evolve. And I'm going to get to the landscape in a second, but the next one you've got to look at is the next upcoming generation that who are we going to cater to, which become the big influencers, that that younger consumer who's going to very quickly come into that self-purchase power. And very few stores, other than obviously teen retailers who have constantly tried to reinvent themselves to try to cater to that market, uh, are the are the ones that we've got to look beyond. Now, to answer the question about landscape, who's doing that well and who's recognizing the adjustments of these? I would sit there and say dollar stores have done a really good job of captivating all levels of life stage and age for consumers. They've got the older consumer who's looking to save and have newfound convenience, the younger generation, which has frugality in their mix. Uh, They really look to how do they spend their money very differently than their prior generations. Uh, and you then look at the next channel, which is the mass merchant channels, the Targets and Walmarts, have done a really good job of getting the wider variety of consumers to be part of their focus. So, you know, in, in Walmart's case, they certainly do a great job of marketing to the, the, the continual growth customer that they have, which is the mature customer. Uh, and they're trying to appeal to a younger base customer through value. And Target's done a great job of getting that fashion back into there, that Target back into the equation, and certainly getting that young (laughs) consumer to be focused on that. Mm -hmm. So when you look at the different channels, the department store is the one that's most vulnerable. It's a model that the young consumer doesn't find appealing or attractive. And it has Mm -hmm. everything to do with the fact that they do not have a distinct personality anymore, and the consumer isn't looking for that distinction to that level that the department right. stores are providing. So the department stores are going to have to rebuild their model to figure out how to continue to have growth longer term. And Don, that's, that, that's really insightful. Thank you, Marshall. And Don, I, my last question uh, uh, for our show is any retail trends that you see from the data that are emerging now for the consumer that uh, over the next three to five years aren't necessarily things we're talking about that uh, we should just keep on our radar? 
Well, a couple of them are tried and true, and I think they're worth pointing out. So uh, value seems to always be rewarded by the consumer, Michael. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and the the one that the, the retailer that I think um, gives the best example of that for us is Costco. Yeah, people pay between sixty five to one hundred and ten dollars for that membership, and <clears throat> they were the retailer that was least disrupted through this whole e-commerce transition in many categories that largely went online. Yeah. Uh, because they kept their value proposition with the, the, uh, the treasure hunt and the member value at the center of everything they did. The other one that I think is interesting is many retailers had on their top three list of things that, that they were known for was price. Yep. Uh, unless you were EDLP uh, with with uh, Walmart and Target to some degree, um, fast fashion, unless you were in those, you really couldn't differentiate yourself on price anymore. And I think that really caught uh, a lot of retailers and some brands off guard <clears throat> in terms of how they had differentiated themselves in the past. And they were not able to get credit for the, for the, uh, for that from the, uh, from the consumer. And then the last one is uh, assortment. Um, it was really a sad day when our only specialty toy retailer went out of, went out of business here in the United States. And there's a lot of reasons for that, Michael. Um, okay. But I found it absolutely shocking that yeah. the consumer never gave Toys R Us the credit for having a breadth and a right. depth of assortment. Donald and so that says a lot to us. Yeah. Yeah. We, we could keep talking for hours here. And so uh, uh, I just want to take this opportunity to say thank you for it. And uh, to any of our listeners, uh, obviously, yeah, Don Anza and Marshall Cohen at the NPD group, uh, feel free to reach out to, to them because there's obviously a tremendous wealth of data. And uh, I want to thank you all for listening to Shopcast. Uh, uh, it's been great covering this landscape. And uh, really, uh, a really truly insightful overview of the trends in retail today. So, so thank you. Thank you for listening to Shopcast, talking retail strategy. Please join host Michael Dart for another edition of the program next Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And check out past episodes at any time on demand. We hope you enjoy your week.